presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're talking about the third task. Welcome everybody to episode 41 of First Years. I know I say this every time, but we have so much to go over. So let's just dive right in. So much happened in these two chapters. So we start off with chapter 30. And where we left off was that Harry went to go see Dumbledore. And there's something in the room that he notices. It's this weird bowl thing. There's like like a misty smoky thing coming out of it and Harry falls right into it and it turns out that he falls right into a memory and we see a few things in these memories of Dumbledore but the first is that we see the circular room kind of like a dungeon with a chair in the center that has chains attached to it and Here we see quite a few different trials of people who had supported Voldemort back when he was in power. And we see Karkaroff in this scene. And it made me wonder about the other ministries of magic or other magical governments because if Karkaroff isn't from Britain and is the headmaster of Durmstrang, where I'm assuming he studied, why is the British Ministry of Magic handling this case? How do, we've seen that there are other governments in the wizarding world. We saw, we saw them at the Quidditch World Cup. So why is it that Karkaroff is on trial specifically in the British Ministry of Magic? Also, In this scene, we get some interesting perspectives on Dumbledore and Moody, or I should say from Dumbledore and Moody. So Moody says that it took him six months to track Karkaroff down, but that if he presents enough names, that Crouch has agreed to let him go. And my question is, what does that say about second chances? We've been talking about that a lot. And do you think giving names is enough of a redemption to get you out of jail after working for Voldemort, who has killed people and tortured people? Another difference in opinion that we see between Moody and Dumbledore, which again, we've also been seeing a lot, especially related to second chances, but where Dumbledore doesn't like the use of the Dementors, in this circumstance. Moody wants to justify it for people like Karkaroff who aligned themselves with Voldemort. Are you more on Dumbledore's side or Moody's side with this? Do you think using Dementors for the worst of the worst of the Wizarding World is okay or not? Snape is also name-dropped here 
and we find out that Snape actually was a Death Eater, but Dumbledore vouched for him. And apparently, Snape was a Death Eater and then rejoined the good side before the Dark Lord's downfall and he was working as a spy. What do we think about this? This is so interesting. And it's such a huge piece of information. We've seen Karkaroff and Snape interact a lot in this book. And we were wondering how they have such a weird, close-ish relationship. And this must be why. But what do we think about that? Do we, because Moody implied that Snape was a Death Eater and said that, well, he didn't say it specifically, but has shown us that he doesn't trust Snape. So, do you trust Dumbledore or do you trust Moody? Is Moody justified in his suspicion of Snape or not? Should he be trusting Dumbledore's judgment? Because Dumbledore is a powerful wizard and clearly believes in second chances, but also I think Dumbledore isn't stupid and probably, you know, would need some serious concrete evidence from Snape to really trust him and give him a second chance. We also see that Ludo Bagman was on trial and no one wanted to send him to prison because he was this famous Quidditch star and we don't really know where his loyalties actually lie. But do you think this sort of has something to do with his weird sketchy activity at the Quidditch World Cup? And do you think it says anything about how he's been behaving throughout this entire tournament? He keeps, you know, trying to talk to Harry. Do we think that's has anything to do with anything? We also finally see the scene where Crouch, Barty Crouch, sends his son to prison. We see a group of people, a group of Death Eaters who captured Frank Longbottom for information and subsequently tortured him and his wife with the Cruciatus Curse. And we saw that Neville had a bad reaction to seeing the Cruciatus Curse in class. And this must be why, which is so terrible and heartbreaking. Neville's parents were popular, and it strikes Harry that he never really wondered why Neville lived with his grandmother. Also, the evidence in this case wasn't super reliable, but everybody loved them and needed them to catch the people who did it, right? So, do we think there's a chance that some people accused of being involved weren't actually kind of like serious? You know, we've seen two cases, which I think is interesting, where based off of the likability of someone, the judges have gone one way or the other. It's purely based off of like who this person is and not necessarily on the evidence against them. But in this scene, we see Barty Crouch's son begging not to be sent to Azkaban. Do you believe him that he wasn't involved? Or do you think he's just saying that? Also, Barty Crouch says that he's no son of his. Do you think that's cruel? Or justified? Or acceptable? Would you accept a child of yours that had done something like this? Would you have acted the same way that Barty Crouch did? And what really strikes me here is that 
you know, Dumbledore tells Harry not to tell anybody about Neville's parents, and Harry respects Neville enough not to share the secret, even to his own best friends. I feel like a lot of people would have been like, yeah, okay, I won't tell anybody except for Ron and Hermione, right? But he actually honors his word and doesn't tell them and feels terrible for Neville. And Harry comes to this really big revelation, which may seem obvious, but really when you get to the heart of it, it's that Voldemort is behind all of this. He's behind Harry's tragedy, Neville's tragedy, Sirius's tragedy, behind many people's tragedy. And what do you think of that moment where Harry realizes that? Because we know Voldemort's the villain, obviously, he always has been. But what does it mean for Harry to really have that realization and have it really hit him in the gut that, you know what, everything bad that has happened to people I know, it's all connected to this one guy. You know, what do you think that means for the story overall? And what do you think it means for Harry's character? We also get another article from Rita Skeeter, the day of the tournament, and she's writing about how Harry is dangerous because his scar hurts, and she reveals that he speaks Parseltongue, which someone in the article says would warrant him to be put under investigation, but like, why? I mean, this is just another example of more prejudice within the wizarding world, there's so much, it's unreal. And Parseltongue, you know, is associated with dark wizards in this world, but it also seems to be like something you're born with, not something you like actively learn. Like if you're a dark wizard, you, you know, choose to learn this language. Like it seems to be something that, you know, you're just born with the ability to do. And Hermione seems to actually have figured out something about Rita Skeeter, but we don't know what it is yet. So I have to ask, what do you guys think she figured out? There's also such a touching moment where the families of the champions can come visit them, and they're like, Harry, family's here, and it turns out to be Mrs. Weasley and Bill Weasley which is just so sweet and just makes me want to cry. And I thought this scene was just, it's so touching, but also super interesting to see how they all sort of reminisce about Hogwarts and to see how the school has changed between generations. And it's kind of sad that there's not really a real reason for alumni to come back to Hogwarts except for an event like this. Then... We get to the big event, the final task of the Triwizard Tournament, which takes place in a maze on the Quidditch pitch with a bunch of different obstacles that they have to get through, and they have to get the Triwizard Cup. So Harry walks through the maze, he's using his wand like a compass, he doesn't really find a lot of things on his way, but he faces a Bogart, which is a which is a Dementor for him, which he faced last book. And then he also goes through some mist that turns him upside down. And I wanted to know what that symbolized. 
And my first thought was, is that it's kind of like this book turns everything upside down with these tasks, like we spoke about uh, in our episode on the first task, where normally the dragon is the last task, but this was the first task. And so, you know, you have this really hard thing as your first obstacle, and then it only gets worse from there. So what do you think that means, this mist that literally puts you upside down and makes you feel like you're going to fall from the earth, but if you just have the dedication and the bravery and, you know, the the clear mind to think, okay, if I just take another step, you know, I'll be okay. And what do you think it means that, like, you know, we heard Cedric have to go against the Scroots, and this was one of Harry's obstacles, as well as the Bogart. Also, I asked this in our Mindful Magic Monday yesterday, but why do you think it means that the last task is a maze? Besides, you know, problem-solving skills and really having to figure out something on your own and sort of, you know, Harry's been on his own for all of the tasks, but this was the one that, for me at least, felt the most isolated. So what do you think the fact that this is a maze means? for this task, especially as the final task. Why is it so important that it has to be a maze? So Harry runs into Cedric a couple times, and also at one point hears Fleur screaming and has a moment of wondering if she's okay. And he also does have the thought of, okay, one champion down, but he's also very concerned for her, trying to figure out why she screamed and where she is, which I think speaks a lot about Harry as a person. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But Harry's big obstacle is that he has to face a sphinx and he has to solve the riddle to get past her, which he does. And then he runs into Cedric and they both have to face a giant spider, just like in book two. But if you'll indulge me for a second, we're going to talk about sphinxes. So sphinxes are a mythological creature with a lion's body and a human head. And they're present throughout a lot of different cultures throughout history, especially Greek, Egyptian, and Asian mythology and art. And so the earliest um, and most well-known sphinx is the Great Sphinx at Giza, which dates back to between 2575 and 2465 BCE. There are some differences, though, between the cultures in their depiction of sphinxes. So Asian sphinxes had wings, which was also found in Greek depictions as well, but the Greeks also depicted it with a serpent's tail. We also see some female sphinxes, Usually they were depicted with one paw raised and they would also have like a lion or a griffin or another sphinx depicted along with them, which is interesting considering Gryffindor. The sphinx first appeared in Greece around 1600 BCE and then disappeared in 1200 for about 400 years before making another return. In ancient Egypt, the Sphinx was this 
spiritual guardian and was often placed by tombs or temples. And we actually don't know what the Egyptians called the Sphinx because the word Sphinx actually comes from Greek and the word was first used 2,000 years after the Egyptian Sphinxes were created. In Greece, though, the Sphinxes were much more like the ones that we see in this chapter, where you had to answer a riddle, otherwise you would be attacked. With the myth of Oedipus, Thebes was in conflict with a Sphinx who would bring famine and drought and would kill anyone who answered her riddle wrong. And the riddle was, what is it that has one voice and yet becomes four-footed and two-footed and three-footed? and is able to change its form, but moves slower the more feet it uses. Do you want a second to guess? I'll give it to you. So the answer, which Oedipus does guess, is a man. We crawl as babies, we walk on two feet during most of our life, and then we use a cane as we age. Hesiod also wrote in the Theogony that the Sphinx was born from the Chimera and was related to the Namian lion and Cerberus. So after Harry gets through this and after they get through the spider, the cup is right there. And Cedric and Harry have a moment where they want each other to take it because they feel like they owe it to the other person. Harry at first tells Cedric to take it because if they were to race for it, he'd lose. But Cedric says that Harry saved him more than once. And then they get into this argument about who owes who for what, which is interesting considering what we've spoken so far about these two when it comes to fairness and their house qualities. And so I went back to look at the Sorting Hat song from book one so we can remind ourselves of the qualities of these two houses. So it goes, quote, you might belong in Gryffindor, where dwell the brave at heart. Their daring, nerve, and chivalry set Gryffindors apart. You might belong in Hufflepuff, where they are just and loyal. Those patient Hufflepuffs are true and unafraid of toil, unquote. Harry certainly has heart and daring. We've seen his daring and nerve in every book so far, and we've seen his heart, especially in this book which is what I was talking about earlier when he was concerned about Floor. But when we look at the definition of chivalrous, it says, quote, marked by honor, generosity, and courtesy, unquote. And that's definitely how we've seen Harry act, especially in this moment. And with Cedric, who's absolutely doing well in this tournament, who has stepped up in the face of danger and actively put himself in the running with this tournament, in the first place, 100%, unafraid of toil. And we see him being just in this moment too, where he's saying, you know, it's only fair for Harry to win because he owes him so much. These two want this victory so badly, but are willing to let the other have it. Until Harry just suggests that they share it. After all, it's a Hogwarts victory at the end of the day, which is ultimately what matters. So they take the cup together and end up being transported somewhere. Because this is the same description that we got at the beginning of the book when Harry and Cedric took a port key to the Quidditch Cup. 
So there's some cool overlap there. So what do you think that means? That this device is coming back in this book, in this moment. Where do you think they'll end up? Do you think there's an extra task that they need to face? Or do you think this is bringing them to the front of the maze where, so they don't have to find their way out, essentially, where they will both win the Triwizard Tournament together? Let me know your thoughts by emailing me at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at firstyearspod. Thank you so much for joining me. For next time, you just need to read chapters 32 through 34, and I will be joined by a very special guest who has been on the podcast before, and I'm very excited to see them return. So be ready for that, and I will see you guys next time. First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones Dittmeyer. All sources can be found in our show notes or on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash first years podcast. That's Sarah with an H, and Dittmeyer is spelled D I T T M E I E R. Please remember that staying a Harry Potter fan is the biggest form of revolt that you can have, and we are committed to continuing to make this fandom and this community safe and welcoming to everybody.